Welcome to the Ag Future Podcast, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the future of farming, food, and nutrition. Farming the Future, I'm Tom Martin, and with us to share their perspectives on what the future holds for agriculture and food production and consumption are Dr. Carl Dawson, Vice President and Chief Scientific Officer at Alltech. Uh, Dr. Dawson directs activities at the company's bioscience centers around the world. Dr. Michael Bolge will be joining us uh, shortly, we hope. Uh, Dr. Bolge is Distinguished Professor of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University, and uh, he there conducts research and teaches in the areas of farm and agribusiness management and finance. Mary Shulman is with us. Mary is former director of Harvard Business School's agribusiness program and an internationally recognized thought leader on the future of the global agri-food industry. And Aidan Conley, Chief Innovation Officer and Vice President of Corporate Accounts at Alltech. Aidan has been with Alltech for 25 years. We appreciate you all joining us this morning. I'm going to pose questions to each of you. Once you've offered your views, your fellow panelists will have an opportunity to comment on those views. But let's begin with a very broad, very big question uh, that itself could consume an hour, but uh, we also have some questions that have come in from media, and we'll try to get them in as well. Beginning with you, Dr. Dawson, and yes. we'll, we'll just come across the, the panel. Are you optimistic about the future of farming, and if so, why? You know, it depends a little bit on what you call farming right now and the definition of farming. But I would say that I'm not very optimistic if you think about farming as we did a decade ago. It's a typical family farm. It's changed a lot. And it's undergoing a revolution or evolution, if you'd like, with more technology being in the farm all the time. To put this in context, I was thinking last night about uh, a visit I had with my nephew who runs a farm in northern Montana. Uh, he and his neighbors think about uh, farming or using an agricultural unit as thousands of acres. Uh, if you think back uh, many years, uh, that was inconceivable before. We never even thought about using that much land or, or that much resources. So it's changed considerably even within the last two decades. A uh, hundred acres was considered a large farm at that point in time. These people are ready to move to the next level and will quadruple in size in the next five years. That's their goal. When they do that, they have to have the support. And technology is what's driving that, whether it's from the machines they drive to harvest and plant, or these crop materials, the seed stock they're using in animals or in plants. All of those things are coming from technology and they have to be able to understand it. So they're really a technology group now. Mary Shulman, optimistic otherwise? Well, I have to be optimistic because being a farm owner here in Kentucky myself, I have to be optimistic about the future. I do think it's a it's actually a, a great time. I think I'm a little more optimistic than Carl is. I think it's not just about the scale that we can achieve, and a lot of that's through technology. It's also about the ability to achieve uh, um, more differentiation, to be able to address more consumer needs. And we see now that you know there's a lot louder voices that are impacting the food system. But if I look around the world and we go back to those, you know, tremendous figures that the FAO puts out, you know, looking at the changes of population and the growth of incomes, that, you know, the demand for agricultural products, the output of farms, is only going to increase and will increase by maybe 60 or 70 percent in the next 35 years. That's a great time and um, a great need that needs to be fulfilled, and I completely agree with, with uh, Carl that it's about technology will help us fill that. On the other side, though, I do think there is this issue of economic viability that we also need to be aware of because um, the way that the dynamics of pricing works at the farm level, the typical supply and demand economics, and those don't tend to move in lockstep. So we see times, um, for instance, today on crop farming in the U.S. that you know, prices are relatively low compared to other times within the last five years. So that um, the, the need for, to maintain that economic viability for farmers to survive, and, and in particular to attract new farmers, younger farmers, to come into the system. Because I think as we all know that the average age of farmers in the U.S. are getting to be quite, quite substantial. You know, we're approaching that 60-year-old you know, mark. We need new talent to come in. They can only come in if there's attractive returns in the sector. 
Aiden Connolly, you move in the area of innovation and ideas. What do you see in the future? Well, um, I have the chance to uh, meet the Imagination's FAO group every year, and they, of course, have been quite pessimistic about the future of agriculture, uh, mentioning the numbers that Mary's mentioned of 70% increase in food production over the next 35 years. But if you actually compound that out, Tom, you're really only looking at probably a figure of 1.7% improvement in productivity per year. And agriculture has done that and done more than that. And particularly when you look at the gaps we have from a nutritional perspective in feeding animals, nutritional perspective in feeding crops, even the losses we have that Altec mentioned, these glimpse factors that are holding back agriculture uh, productivity, losses, the amount of food that we lose, the amount of uh, fertilizer we waste, uh, where food is lost even within the food chain. I would be extremely optimistic about our potential for increasing, improving the amount of food we produce, and I think farming is going to be very much part of feeding this uh, population we've spoken about by 2050. Okay, let's move into our questions, and uh, we'll begin with Mary Shellman. Consumers are being described as millennials, prosumers, super consumers. Do you think we're facing fundamentally new groups of consumers out there, and do you think this reflects a real change in the marketplace? And if so, what are their needs? So, Tom, I do think we are facing uh, a fundamental change. We're in the midst of a fundamental change, and that's a very good thing, and I think it's very positive for the, the food industry and the ag industry that's, that's a part of that. Um, in particular, that, and this is not just that, you know, kind of that millennial group, even though that's very important, but I think overall, people are asking more questions about you know, where their food comes from, how it's produced. And, um, and it's not just in like the US or in first world countries. This is true around the world in, um, in areas, whether it's driven by food safety, whether it's driven just by greater awareness because technology um, and you know, the new digital media has made information so available. Um, so I do think we're in the middle of a food movement. I think that this idea of engaged eating is um, a, a, a really attractive thought to get your arms around. A big piece of that, though, is this new millennial consumer that we talk about. What is that? A millennial, um, so uh, someone... Engaged eating. Huh? Yeah, oh, that's right, the new millennial. The, um, this idea that you know someone born between 1980 and 2000, someplace in that time frame, and um, so have grown up at a time where basically eating, so technology's all around them, they get information in different ways, they have a different values, they've grown up being fed you know, maybe specialty products like you know, um, Annie's mac and cheese compared to Kraft. And we find that now this group, and they're the biggest demographic group, so 75 million of them in the U.S., right? Actually, 83 million of them in the U.S. compared to 75 million baby boomers, the next largest group. And they're just at the stage of, you know, having families and moving up in their income potential. So very, very attractive to the food industry. But when they look at this, they want, first of all, they have a much greater understanding of the link between what they eat and their health. And that's a very positive change. The second thing, I think, is their, what they eat is part of their identity. It actually reflects who they are as a person. So they're big about taking pictures of their food and posting it on Instagram and uh, sharing it with their friends and going out and seeking information about it um, in different ways, from not just from mom or not just from advertisements. And then that's also, though, food is, it actually reflects their values. And this is the thing I think that um, perhaps poses the biggest challenge to the traditional food industry. Because not only do they want products that, um, that meet a certain price point and a certain safety point, they want products that have a purpose. They want products from um, an industry that has the same values that they do. And they're often willing to pay more for these products. And as a matter of fact, I was at a, at a meeting last week in New Zealand, and someone was pre presenting the results of a big survey all over the world. And it was that... Um, that asking this millennial group of how they thought they had more influence, whether it was through their vote for a political candidate, and they say, no, it's our vote with our dollars. Mm -hmm. So we believe, you know, we vote for these types of products and we're willing to pay for this. So we're actually at a time that there's kind of a bifurcation in the food system. There's a, um, you know, the, the big majority of consumers out there need safe food and affordable food and accessible food. But yet this group that's premium category 
is really growing in their needs and growing in their demands. And they like the stories, they want transparency, they need uh, traceability. And it's, so I think it, it's putting a very interesting twist on the system right now. Aiden, any thoughts on this? Um, I, I would say that I probably, as a father of two millennials, I question whether millennials are really that much different than uh, maybe prior generations. They clearly are compared to the immediate generation before them. I know Dr. Lyons has raised this question whether their values and their, their beliefs aren't similar to those that we saw maybe in people from the 1950s and 1960s who are also very aspirational in changing the world. What's very clear is whether we use the word millennial as Mary has used, prosumer is a word I like a lot because I think it grasps a little bit more the fact that there are people proactively making food choices based on their ethics and their, their desires and uh, what, they, what they believe and what they would like to support. And, and that part I think Mary has described extremely, uh, extremely clearly. Uh, that is definitely something that we have not seen before, certainly haven't seen in the last 20 or 30 years. We provided food which was affordable, which was available, which was safe. Consumers or prosumers are looking for something more and that's a fundamental change in our food system. Dr. Dawson, do you want to add anything? I, I don't want to exclude anybody here. No, I, I agree with the comments that come out. I think you are looking at a different marketplace, and, and I think that that's uh, something that will drive the overall agricultural system completely. So as time goes on, it'll be interesting to see how that evolves, but I, I think it's going to be a simple adjustment in, in the way the markets look at, at the consumer. Okay, Dr. Dawson, next question is for you and Mary, if you would respond. Um, it appears that nutrition has not changed for decades, and we may be at the uh, limits of what we can do given the ways uh, in which nutrition is researched. Are there new tools that allow farmers to understand better how to feed their animals and be more precise in nutrition? Yeah, absolutely there are new tools, but I guess I would take a, a little bit of, of a different view on this. I really don't see that nutrition has been a stagnant science over the last uh, two decades or even the last century. Uh, we've had a lot of advances and, and, and that's really been responsible for a lot of the changes in livestock production we've seen, particularly in underdeveloped countries. We're using lots of new technology, amino acid balances, uh, nutrient balances are new things that have come out of that. But we do have a lot of new tools that are coming out that are going to really change the way we look at this. Some of this comes from the ability to collect data and, and process that data, integrate it into something that's a very precise model. We've never had that capability to do that before. From our point of view, working at the very molecular level, we can look and see what food and food ingredients do to the basic physiology of an animal by looking at gene expression. And this is a new tool that is moving along and moving forward. We'll probably talk a lot about this, but it's, it's a way of putting a lot of data into that, but it's a very precise tool that tells you exactly what's happening. And it's really allowed us to uncover a lot of the hidden secrets that happened with nutrition. So those new tools are becoming available. They're going to allow for diagnostic tests. They're going to look at new ways of managing and, and looking at the way we train our animals to actually eat. So many tangential areas we could go here, and we're only two questions into this conversation. <laughs> uh, but let's go off on one, on, on big data, uh, because we know that it has an over, it's having an overwhelming impact. And something of a late comer to the agricultural world, late arrival in the agricultural world, does anybody want to offer some thoughts on, on how big data is changing things and what the future holds in that area? I, I guess I would start off by saying you have a tool here to look at millions and billions of observations, whether it's productivity, food intake, the way we grow our crops, how much rain you get, all of this can be integrated into very precise models and that's going to be the big change in agriculture. If you'd like, we're talking about moving to armchair farming. We're going to be making our decisions from a site, sitting in front of the computer, looking to see what we can predict in the future. That's a tremendous tool that we've never had before. And I think in particular, uh, we've seen some of the bigger questions, such as food safety. The pilobacter is something which is extremely difficult to measure on farm, uh, to find out what can influence it, what causes it to increase or decrease. We in Altec have been working with a lot of programs around that, where big data allows us to capture perhaps the factors that we have 
underlie why that, that occurs, but which we've never been able to analyze before. So it's starting to understand things in a very fundamental way. And I think that big data, whether it be used in terms of diseases, whether it be used in terms of performance of animals or crops, whether it be used in terms of uh, a lot of these sensors and new, new uh, digital technologies can capture a lot of information we've never been able to capture before. We can now interpret that information because we're able to use larger algorithms, larger systems to be able to, to understand what exactly we're looking at. Okay, uh, let me, let me, sorry for the uh, uh, problems here in terms of getting engaged, but I'm here now yeah. and just to comment quickly on this big data issue. Good. It seems to me that specifically we have uh, had significant uh, advances in this area and it, the advances may be as much down uh, along the entire value chain as they are at the production sector. In fact, the production sector maybe is in some kinds lagging and just starting to catch up. So the whole issue of the opportunity we have here in terms of both capturing uh, the, the, the payoff of big data, not only at the farm production level, but also throughout the entire value chain is really, really, really critical. We can get now the, 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 the messages more accurately back from what consumers want, whether they be in terms of physical characteristics of what they eat and their eating experiences, but also uh, get more uh, feedback in terms of those things we, uh, which we've, we've already talked about, credence attributes that are really, really important that are hard to, to measure more uh, uh, accurately by being able to have traceability uh, through that value chain. So it's a really, really big uh, advancement. Okay, and thank you for joining us, Dr. Bolge. Um, let's, let's dig a little bit more deeply into technology. And uh, the next question is for you, Aiden, and uh, Dr. Dawson. Uh, and let's look at the range of primary technologies that are transforming agriculture beyond big data. What else is happening out there? There's an awful lot happening. And it's very hard, I think, for somebody to, to capture the degree of change which is occurring. I think if anybody thinks that agriculture is going to be the same way in 20 or 30 years' time, they've got their head in the sand. Um, we've written a certain number of papers on the digital technologies, and there are eight digital technologies that are transforming agriculture at the moment. Those include robots and drones and blockchain and the Internet of Things, uh, virtual reality, enhanced reality. Um, these are technologies which either from a hardware or software perspective, can fundamentally change the ways in which we understand what happens when we grow plants or grow animals. There are other technologies such as nutrigenomics. That's one that Alltech has invested very heavily in. Uh, we're the only ones in animal agriculture to do so. And we are big believers that understanding how nutrients impact on gene expression in animals and in organisms is going to be very important for maximizing their productivity. And I wouldn't... Uh, either forget gene editing, this area which at the moment is described as CRISPR, but certainly it's uh, dramatically transforming what we can do with, uh, again, with the ability of plants and animals to resist disease, enhance productivity, achieve certain characteristics we're looking at from a food perspective. So I don't know how to capture it all in such a, a short way, Tom, but I'd certainly say the digital technologies, nutrigenomics, and gene editing are the three major areas, I think, uh, that are going to transform the way we think about how food is produced. Carl Dawson, anything to add to that? I, I think I'd add a few other things. There are things that are happening in the area of biochemistry, if you'd like, uh, findings that are really changing the way we think about uh, processing feeds, handling feeds, uh, the way we think about using feed additives. All of those are coming from very basic biochemical evaluation of what's going on in the animal systems and the way they eat. We're doing the same thing as in plants today. Uh, one of the things that, that comes up when you start thinking a little bit about this, we always think about what we're going to do on the nutrition side and how we're going to change the nutrition. We can do that and we're starting to narrow in, if you'd like, on, on the gap between uh, genetic potential and what the animal can do. But there's the other side of that issue that comes up too. And one of the things that can happen is we can start thinking about selecting our animals for specific nutrition, which is the other direction to come into this. Uh, we talked a little bit about gene editing and the capabilities there. We have the capability of doing that uh, and, and change what those animals look like coming into that system. And the thing, same thing happens on the plant side. But that's a very important thought process to keep in mind that those two things are going to come together someday and we have to be able to uh, go forward with those in the future. Okay, uh, an open question to, to all of you. This comes to us from the Irish Farmers Monthly and it dovetails nicely with what you've just been talking about. 
from both the environmental and the productivity perspectives. How important will electric and autonomous vehicles be on the future farm? Will such machinery become more important in light of the increased need for sustainability as the world population increases? Any thoughts? Look, uh, we're facing into a world where we're talking about having planes uh, fly themselves, cars drive themselves. It's perfectly logical we would see the same thing on a farm. And anybody who's seen some of the injuries that can occur when something like the PTO shaft on the back of a tractor can cause somebody to lose an arm or a limb uh, mm -hmm. understands that there's also safety issues that we could, be, could be addressed through the, the fact of no longer having the potential for, for operator error. So from my perspective, I think it is difficult to find labor on farm. When you find labor, you want labor to be uh, well-trained and well-prepared. You have safety opportunities also. I think there's just going to be a lot of factors that are going to drive for these autonomously driven tractors and harvesters to become part of our future. Automation and robotics are going to be, I think, much more common and, and, and more rapidly adopted than many people think. We, we have a kind of a debate here on the Purdue campus of how quick we're going to see this happening in the field. Uh, the, 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 the discussion is related to whether it's going to be five years or ten years where we're going to before we're gonna see a pretty wide adoption of automated tractors and, and uh, uh, other systems within uh, uh, crop production agriculture. We already see it in the dairy industry in terms of robotic milking. Uh, we're seeing it happen particularly in terms of harvesting and specialty crops. And so it's going to be coming much more rapidly than we realize. Uh, and it has a, the opportunity to profoundly change the agricultural sector. So it's a really, really important development. Anybody else? I, I think that's true. and. and Quite frankly, it's not that far off. It's some of it's already here. I've been on combines that essentially drive themselves down the row. Uh, you need a, t a driver there to turn the combine around, but in the big fields, these 18, 19, 20-foot swaths can be driving themselves and, and don't really need any help, and they're controlled by GPS, and it, it's, it's amazing to see how little manpower it really takes to run those. And they actually now are uh, uh, able to turn themselves around, so that's even changing, right? They didn't the day I was there. <laughs> I understand, but that's, that's how fast this technology is coming. It's coming very rapidly. My belief is we'll see this uh, in the fields in five years, not ten years, and rapidly adopt. Yeah, no, I was just going to say I was with an ag tech startup, uh, and uh, obviously they'd made too much money because the owner had just bought himself a Tesla, I was driving down the road, uh, he turned, he just took his hands off the steering wheel and let the car drive itself, uh, which gave me a little bit of heart palpitations as I watched it maneuvering its way through the city, but it shows you what's possible, and in the fields we've got a much more controlled environment, we have much less risk of things such as cars, doors opening, or psych bicycles, or whatever, so it's, it's an inevitable part of our future, and we have the perfect opportunity to use this technology. And I just might add one more little piece of that that's even a finer detail around it, which is what happens when we get in the field and we have the sensors on the sprayers and you're actually sensing which weed to spray, which, you know, you're sensing which bloom doesn't have enough pollen on it so you can provide supplemental pollination. So we have these big kind of micro-level influences. But in at this, but then down at this, you know, maybe more of a macro, you know, the micro-level side of it, it gets to where Carl says about, you know, how do we actually, technology can help us get closer to achieving that potential that exists. We're talking about 9 billion people by 2050. Do these things, do, do these innovations get us to where we need to go to be able to feed the world? I think there's no doubt about that. Yeah. I think that technology is, is developing fast and, and it will continue to keep up with the demand for the foreseeable future. Aiden, you mentioned earlier, I'm sorry. Yes, yeah, so maybe this continues on to that, but I had the opportunity to meet to talk to a cooperative this week that was asking for some ideas about 2050, and I said 2050 for me has become unimaginable in terms of what could potentially happen. And I often wonder whether 2050 is not the right number we should be using. Maybe we should be just focusing, as Dr. Bolge mentioned, on the next five to ten years where we can concretely comprehend what will change. But if you say the number is 9 billion, and Mary says the number is 10 billion, and somebody else says, well, what happens if we start being capable of changing life itself and, and, and really extending lifespans, maybe the number we're looking at is 15 billion. Maybe we're looking at a much greater number of people that we're going to have to feed. So I, I think we need to be 
really uh, cognizant of the fact that this technological thing is moving so quickly. Don't stretch yourself too far in predicting. Look concretely at what should be used and how it should be used in the, in, in, in the foreseeable future, which is probably more like 10 years than, than, than 35 years. As things are changing so much more rapidly these days. You mentioned earlier nutrigenomics, and, and I wanted to touch on that with uh, uh, Dr. Dawson. Uh, what are the main benefits that you see from a, a nutrigenomics perspective for farmers, and how will that change the way that they farm? Well, if you think we're going to have a diagnostic kit tomorrow that solves all the nutritional problems of animal, nutrigenomics isn't going to deliver that right now. However, it is redefining nutrition. When we think about evaluating a feed material, a feed product, a supplementation strategy, uh, management practices, the way we feed calves or young chickens, all of those things are starting to change now because we have a tool that allows us to actually measure what happens when we make a nutritional change. That's a very powerful thing, and it's not only allowing us to look at productivity, we can now measure the immunity or disease resistance in a bird, and we can change that by nutritionally altering the diet in, in the young chick's diet. Uh, same thing with calves. We can pass uh, material or information from one generation to the next using uh, a nutritional strategy, but we can actually measure that and see how it's done. So nutrigenomics is, is really going to redefine things. It's already redefined mineral nutrition. Trace mineral nutrition will never be the same as we view it uh, from now on. Uh, we have, know that we can use less minerals. We can change and have less impact on the environment by using these tools. But this tool allowed us to very rapidly understand that and change our nutritional practices. Dr. Bolgi, I want to give you an opportunity to jump in here. Uh, so let me just comment quickly. Uh, I'm not a scientist at the same level as Dr. Dawson is, so I don't have that kind of uh, understanding at the at the at the more granular level. But we sometimes describe this and the other technologies we're talking about as moving agriculture from quote growing stuff uh, to biological manufacturing. And this biological manufacturing mentality is very much in the context of what we've already been talking about. It's really understanding the science, uh, uh, nutrigenomics. It's understanding biotechnology. It's understanding everything that has the potential to significantly impact uh, the the growth process of plants and animals uh, at a much more uh, scientific level. And what we're getting is we're getting sciences that now and technologies that now are developing uh, because of the interconnectivity between previous science bases that have been in silos, whether it be nutrition, whether it be genomics, whether it be a whole set of things, biology generally. We see some universities that have said, just as an illustration, that uh, uh, science is important, no doubt about it. But the science that's essential, essential, in fact, a required science increasingly in many universities is you have to take biology. You have to take biology to get an understanding because biology is increasingly driving uh, the world. You know, can I, can yes. I come back to that, though, Mike? Yes. I mean, I think I agree with you and, and Dr. Dawson that, you know, science, nutrigenomics is giving us amazing tools and things. But, Mike, you used that term biological manufacturing. And I put my consumer hat on, and I just think that that's a terrible term because the idea is you don't want, consumers now don't want their food manufactured in any kind of factory, and that's just you know, kind of the picture that comes in your mind. So you yourself were talking about at the beginning you know, how to, so now we can be more uh, responsive to consumers, we can have differentiation, we can give these credence attributes. But yet now you're proposing or using this term that's actually far away from that. So I understand uh, your perspective, and I absolutely agree with that perspective. We don't, we aren't going to promote, we aren't going to advertise, we're not going to be saying to consumers, uh, this is a biological manufactured process. In fact, processing generally, the word processing generally is not something consumers really, really want to hear relative to the food. It's interesting, they're 
more than happy to hear it relative to uh, health types of issues, but not necessarily, and they're more interested in, a, in everything else they buy, but they really uh, are in many cases very negative re related to the food. So I'm not going to go out and get in front, in front of a group of consumers and try to promote this as a way to think, but certainly it's a way we in the industry at the production level increasingly have to have a mental mindset because it allows us to adopt and facilitate the process of growing and producing food much more uh, uh, scientifically and much better than we have in the past. Dr. Bulgy, a topic that we were discussing before you were able to join us, and I'd like to go back to it, uh, is big data or farming data in the future. Actually, it's, it's happening now. Um, how does that affect the types of people that will choose farming as a profession in the future? Do you think it'll change the attractiveness of, of agriculture in some way? Well, I think that uh, increasingly what we're going to find in this industry that uh, those people that are going to be successful uh, have some skills that maybe uh, need to enhance their uh, they need to enhance their historically uh, skills to be successful. So, particularly what we're interested in is analytical skills and analytical skills that really are tied to data and information. Uh, we see this particularly in the financial area, where an area that I work in. Some farmers abhor uh, record keeping. They abhor this idea of having to keep financial information to provide to their lender to understand their own business, to get the financial performance uh, assessment that they need. We are going to increasingly uh, have to develop that skill and feel comfortable with that skill of looking at numbers, looking at information, trying to understand what they say, the story they tell. So it's not trying to get into them uh, so that you just are a number cruncher, but understand the story that they tell. And it's not just the story we need to have in terms of average yields. I mean, we see that as we go across the fields with our uh, uh, yield monitors today. It's the distributions that count. It's what happens when you are in parts of that field where you have low yields as a function of number of things that happen, whether they be weather or whether it be agronomic oriented, and where you get those high yields as well. The same is true with animals. We're starting to see different animal performance, even in the same pen, in the same organ group, as a function of their genetics, as a function of, of number of things. We're going to get more granular in the data, and we need to understand the story there. So data assessment, uh, data summarization, uh, data visualization, those are going to be increasingly skills that uh, we need to have more and more of our producers understand, and they will be the skills that might be very important uh, differentiators. Certainly strategic thinking is another one of those skills, uh, risk assessment, a lot of other skills, but the one specifically related to big data is this willingness to work with data and understand, quote, the story it tells. Aiden, do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I suppose I think of it from a historical perspective, and I think of uh, what was our system for deciding who would become farmers. Well, I suppose originally it was everybody was a farmer, and then gradually we decided that there would be land, and that land would be passed from a, a farm owner to their eldest son. And over time, then it seems as though that's moved into, well, in the case of Ireland, it was divided as many children as you had. Each one got a parcel of land, which created its own issues. Gradually, we seem to move then towards a system where those that don't want to stay in the land go to cities or go and find other jobs. And we've been left with the people who really want to be farmers. And only in the last 20 or 30 years have we started to understand that being a farmer has to, involves education as well. And so obviously all of the educational systems that were set up through land grant and other systems around the world to try to create a <clears throat> farming as a profession. Well, I think what we're looking at now is, again, a fundamental change in what that person's going to look like. They won't necessarily grow up in, on a farm. They might grow up in a city. They won't necessarily have the skills of maybe understanding animals or understanding plants. They'll understand data. They'll understand analytics. They'll understand equipment. They'll understand decision-making between all the various technologies and what the person should buy and what they shouldn't uh, invest in. So those are dramatically different skills than the skills that were used for the last, I'll say, 1,000 years, you might say 100 years, to select or to decide who is it that's a farmer, who's not a farmer. And that's very fundamental. And back to the same numbers we're talking about, I think those influence not who's going to be a farmer in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time, probably even the next five years. We're going to see dramatic differences in terms of who are the right people, who are the successful people who are going to take over stewardship of the land. Seems to have 
broad implications for the entire culture. Are we talking about these attributes uh, appearing mostly in large farming operations or all the way down the chain to small, small farmers, small family farms? I think they have to go all the way down. I, I would come back to this and say for, to both of you, um, to Mike and to Aiden, that you know you got a great descri description. I agree completely. It's about you know you need to understand the data, use the data. But again, what's missing in this? This is this typical production push, and as opposed to the market pull, and we have now consumers controlling more of the acres. I would add to this list, and this is whether it's maybe more appropriate even for a small family farmer, or these new uh, generation coming in that are very attracted to farming for different reasons. It's about being able to understand the markets. It's about being able to understand how do I deliver this differentiated product that has extra value. So it's not just about producing at the lowest price, but producing what the market wants or different segments of the market wants and being able to sell into those channels, connect with those channels. So this is a very big basket now, a very big ask that we're, um, asking, which is a great thing for family farming enterprises because typically there, you don't just have one person involved doing all the decision making, you have a whole set of people, the whole families around the table. And it's sure. the, uh, you know, the, the, the husband or, and the spouse and the, you know, and even the, the children as they come up through it. And, you know, I see these enterprises and they have different specializations within. And that's fantastic because it gives, you know, everybody can bring their strength to the table. So let me let me just uh, uh, completely again agree with what Mary said. Uh, that's a yes. really really important <laughs> issue. And and and, and let, let me just kind of put it in a different context that we're actually working with now. We have a tendency in agriculture to talk about supply chains. Uh, that's true in almost all industries, and that is actually kind of reflective of the push mentality that we've had in a lot of industries, including agriculture. How we're pushing stuff through that supply chain to the consumer. Increasingly now, we're talking about chain reversal, uh, and that's the whole idea that they are demand chains demand-driven chains. We have consumers increasingly telling uh, the entire chain what we want, how we want it, and, and how it ought to be done. And so uh, a really important skill, and it was on my list, we just never got there, is that uh, a, a, a skill that's going to be much, much more important for farmers is going to be this whole idea of understanding and willing to work in an interdependent system uh, rather than being independent, an interdependent system, and be very focused on relationships, collaboration, interpersonal skills. Those are things that many farmers have historically. If I think my own father, for example, that just wasn't something he liked to do. He wanted to be in his farming operation. He didn't want to do farm records, and he didn't want to have a whole lot of relationships with other, uh, uh, other people. And increasingly, those are going to be skills that are be essential to be a successful farmer in the future. I have a question here from, uh, from media that I think is appropriate at the moment. Let's just open it up to everybody. I think each of you can bring a perspective to this. This is from Owen Roberts. He's uh, uh, with the University of Guelph and president of the International Federation of Agricultural Journalists. And he asks, and this is very appropriate because of what happened yesterday in Switzerland, uh, a country renowned for its food supply and taking its food supply very seriously. They held a national referendum there yesterday. It was designed to anchor food security in their constitution. The initiative won approval by about 77% of the electorate. And globally, this was quite a groundbreaking exercise on their part. It reflects the growing interest by people everywhere in the production of the foods they consume, as you mentioned, Mary. Uh, he asked that we touch on some reasons why precision nutrition can give them confidence about the future of that food supply and how to get that message to the consuming public. Would you like to begin with that, Mary? Wow, that's, that's a tough one. I mean, I think this, this issue about food security is, is really important for, um, for everybody in the world, right? And you're talking about Switzerland here. The, the challenge is, is that in some countries you don't have the resources to be able to do that. So, you know, I, I don't know enough about this referendum and kind of what the back end pieces of it. I'd say in certain, definitely areas of the world, 
you know, globally, that precision nutrition will be incredibly important to meet this global demand. But if you start breaking it down on a country level, that's, you know, if you go to an area that, that we haven't talked so much about the fact that, that we can enhance productivity, but we, we have to do it in a time of decreasing resources, decreasing natural resources. Do we have the water? Do we have the, you know, the, uh, the land? You know, how is climate variability affecting things? And um, this, this precision nutrition piece, I think, is, again, it's an important data tool there to be able to do as much as we can with the resources that we have to, to drive up. But, um, but I wouldn't be able to, to speak. And I think country by country, that's a, you're not going to get the same answer. Wheels are turning here. Yes. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think that um, we talk all the time about the need for countries to produce all of their own food. And in essence, we, that sounds like motherhood and apple pie. You have to agree with it. The challenge is that I don't feel that old, but I can remember days or growing up when there weren't oranges in the supermarket, when you couldn't find uh, bananas all year round, uh, when things were much more seasonal. And we've all gotten used to the idea that there's an abundance of food. It's available relatively inexpensively. It, its carbon footprint, I think, even if it comes from Colombia or Kenya, is actually quite low because the systems of distribution have been, uh, become extremely efficient. And I'll even look at countries like China who have laid out their stall that they want to be sufficient in food, yet increasingly are consuming corn from, from uh, Brazil and soybeans from the United States, and you know, they're, they're purchasing pork and chicken. Uh, these are countries who have said they want to produce everything themselves. Um, it's clear that that isn't always that easy. And Mary and I have had this debate in the past about uh, you know, people storing food in cans in their houses. Is that, is that what we should be doing? Do we imagine people would start to do that again? I struggle with that idea. I think the world has become increasingly global. It requires, of course, free trade and requires us to trust other countries won't declare war on us, uh, which maybe is a big thing to, 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 to wonder about. But, but the fact is that we have increasingly this interconnected global system and consumers have an expectation of being able to have food available at a relatively cheap cost and all the foods they want all year round. Dr. Dawson, you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I think uh, I kind of agree the direction that Aiden's going, but you know, the important things that are coming out today with agriculture boil down oftentimes to resource limitations. What do we have to work with? And whether it be the environment, land, water, those are the things that are going to drive the way we look at efficiency as we move forward. And I don't know the initiative uh, that they're talking about in Europe, but the idea that uh, these will not are, are things that we can control right now is, is probably not right. We're going to have a limited amount of resources. I look at an area where I grew up in, in, in southwest Montana, water. At one time, people died over water rights. Uh, for many years, it hasn't been that way, but I received a, a thing in the mail the other day about that I had to declare my water rights again on the property that I own there with the idea that that's going to go away here pretty soon. It's going to be legislated, and maybe there is some security issues there we need to look at. Uh, one of the reasons it's, it's bad there is mining is, is using a lot of water, but this, the fact is, is it's going to happen around the world, and so security does need to be legislated to some extent. Dr. Bolgi, thoughts on food security? Yes, uh, I, I think the other dimension here that we do need to at least spend some time thinking about is what kind of losses we have in the food chain, and particularly in uh, different in different economies in different countries. So it's not just our ability to produce enough to have, quote, food security. It's also our ability to protect the amount of production we get and make sure that it actually gets to consumers and, as a matter of fact, uh, to be more efficient and effective in terms of uh, consuming it and not having such w uh, waste as we frequently have, particularly in the developed country and developed uh, world. And so this whole issue of trying to reduce the amount of losses, the wastage, the amount that shows up uh, uh, being uh, uh, impacted by uh, storage losses, by uh, uh, waste in the field, by not getting harvested adequately, by not being able to get transported adequately, particularly in many of the uh, countries in the developing world, and at the same time, in, uh, in countries like the U.S., 
we have a lot of food wastage that occurs uh, uh, just out of our own refrigerators, just out of our own uh, uh, food systems, uh, where uh, we we uh, we buy buy food products, we don't consume them, we don't take care of them, uh, we don't refrigerate them. If we do refrigerate them, we uh, lose track of them. Uh, we throw it out the, the back of the restaurant. We uh, try to take it to food finders, but sometimes it's uh, already uh, expired in terms of its uh, effectiveness to be able to be consumed. There's a lot of waste in the system, and there actually are some major initiatives underway on the part of uh, both corporate and, and university organizations to try to reduce the losses in the food chain, and that's an important part of this discussion. Dr. Bolger, I want to stay with you for this next question, and Mary, if you would consider this as well. Uh, economically, the U.S. has been the best place to farm, as you, you have written, based on its strong infrastructure, on uh, its open markets. Do you think that that will continue to be the case in the future, or should farmers be seeking new places to conduct business? Well, uh, we already see that uh, occurring. Uh, uh, we have uh, a significant expansion of production agriculture, as everyone knows, in, in uh, South America, Brazil, Argentina being particularly the case, uh, significant expansion of agricultural production in the Ukraine. Uh, uh, and they are major competitors now to the U.S. Uh, uh, we, we see it occurring in China. We see it occurring in Africa. And so we do see uh, uh, opportunities much more broadly in terms of farming than we used to have. Uh, we've actually have had uh, people from the U.S. Uh, I, can, I can name a, a farming family here who has uh, uh, both a U.S. operation and a Brazilian operation. In fact, actually, you know, three families that have that kind of situation. Uh, and so... We are more globally expanding agricultural production. If you go back 30 years ago, uh, it, it's really interesting. Uh, in fact, uh, longer ago than that, uh, you know, Nikita Khrushchev uh, from the former Soviet Union uh, came to the U.S. to buy wheat to feed his people. I mean, here we are in the middle of a Cold War, and he comes to the U.S. his arch enemy to buy food. I mean, this has to be the most ultimate uh, re, uh, indication of failure of the system. Why did he come to the U.S.? Uh, well, in a way, we were the only store in town. We were the only place where you had the opportunity to get the amount of wheat that he needed to feed his people. Now you can get that in a much broader base of, of geographies, let alone corn, soybeans, and other products. Now, the, 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 the interesting dimension of this is that we're going to see increasingly farmers, we think, being more uh, geographically uh, 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 diversified in their production systems. We already see it in the specialty crops where farmers in California uh, have uh, Mexican production as well, okay? Uh, because they can't grow what they need necessarily during their the, the team. We see it happening in terms of other parts of the U.S. where farmers are in different geographic regions, uh, even across the U.S. I've got a potato grower friend who grows potatoes in uh, nine states, 15 locations. So we see it already happening in the U.S. Now it's going to go, we think, even to a more global perspective. And that's a really interesting question, an issue, because it has profound implications. Uh, if we geographically diversify production agriculture, that's an interesting implication in terms of what it does for uh, the potential of weather variability to impact total supplies. Will we get diversification benefits? We don't know, uh, but one would logically think that we do. So will there be farming opportunities in other parts of the world that uh, uh, farmers, whether they be U.S., whether they be European, whether they be South American farmers ought to be seriously thinking about? Uh, the answer is yes. Mary Shelman, thoughts on this? Well, I, I absolutely agree. There's farming opportunities all over the world, and Mike didn't mention Africa. I think that's the next frontier for farming, and that you know, they need a lot of strong technology, but also value chain development there to make that work. However, to come back to the opportunities in the U.S., I think they're still very strong because of um, maybe it's a, a bit of a transition from the typical push mentality into one that's more based on how do we get the most value per acre, per animal, per unit of natural resource. And, and probably land isn't the, the unit of natural resource that we should be looking at. I think water is, in the future, the way that we're going to frame farming operations. You think now what happens with the tremendous growth of the Brazilian soybean industry, it's basically shipping water from Brazil to China. 
That's really how I think about agriculture in the world. You're moving water from one place to the other. New Zealand dairy industry selling water in the in you know basically through um, milk powders to China, to India, to other places in the world. So, um, so I think here for you know that there's tremendous opportunities, but but our farmers have to be much smarter in terms of you know all these technologies we were talking about, the different ways that they think about their business, um, and it's. Uh, and also into connecting to markets and figuring out you know, where you're getting the most value from that water, from that land, how to price in the risk piece of it. Carl, Aiden, thoughts? Well, one of the things that we haven't touched on too much here is the efficiency of animal protein production. And if you start looking at things that are going on around the world right now, aquaculture is one that'll really get your interest. The development of recirculating aquaculture systems is full steam right now. Uh, more of them are going into Norway, their production on fish in RAS systems, these recirculating systems, is, is going to be tenfold greater in the next five years. And those are years. land based, correct? Those are land based systems, but they're very intensive looking at protein production. And we're talking about a system here that's probably three to four times more efficient than any of the terrestrial animals we're used to working with. Better than chickens, they're better than pork and better than beef by a long way. So those kinds of impacts are going to be tremendous when it actually comes to looking at animal protein and, and the way they're being developed. And it has, even for us in, in the feed industry, it's, the implications are, are gigantic. Mm -hmm. Thoughts, Aiden? Yeah. Nope. Okay. Uh, I do have one that I think that you might like to address. Blockchain. Your opinion of blockchain, this, by the way, comes Thanks. to us from Simon Duke of Feed Info. You can thank him personally for me. Uh, okay. Well, uh, what's your opinion of blockchain and its potential for the animal nutrition industry? Well, it, it, clearly blockchain is one of the most exciting of the digital technologies. It's also one of the mo most difficult to get your head around. Um, it really, I suppose, the Bitcoin example is the one that most people are most familiar with, and it's the one that that probably makes it easiest for people to understand that you have something which is this uh, digital ledger where you can understand what's happening in the chain but not see the individual actors or the individual people who are involved in the chain. And I think that has tremendous implications for agriculture. We have not typically, as farmers, we have not liked uh, people knowing exactly where our cattle come from. At the same time, when there's a disease, we want to be able to trace it back. We've not liked knowing who are the people who transform our food between when it's grown on the land and when we consume it. And yet, again, if there's an E. coli outbreak and some child dies, we want to know where did that occur and how did it happen. So I think when you see people like Walmart getting behind blockchain and using it in countries like China and being so impressed by its potential that they then start taking it to the United States and elsewhere, I think you can see what the possibilities are. Um, traceability is a fundamental part of our future. Recapturing the confidence of consumers is extremely important. And I think blockchain is a technology that allows us to do so in a manner that keeps us comfortable that we're not giving away all of our secrets and therefore perhaps not trading away our margins to the end uh, food retailer, but at the same time making sure that if something does occur, uh, how unfortunate that is, that we can actually uh, find out where that occurred and what it is we need to do to stop it happening again. So I think this issue of blockchains is really, really, a really important issue. Sorry for interrupting, and but let me just leverage those comments on food safety and traceability just a little bit further. A lot of people, when they talk about blockchain, think about it in terms of the financial markets and some of the breaches we've had recently in the financial markets and personal security, et cetera, are really, really important. And so uh, that's where a lot of the common perspective is. But uh, it's interesting how some industries are, uh, are actually quite ahead of us in terms of using blockchain for traceability. For example, the diamond industry is using it as a mechanism to try to uh, uh, trace and make sure that those diamonds that they're sourcing uh, not only are true and accurate diamonds, their location, et cetera, but again, back to Mary's points, are with the right uh, 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 credence attributes that they are uh, mind in the right way with the right workforce, with the right people, and the, et cetera. And so I think that uh, this whole issue of traceability uh, and, 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 and food safety uh, will be probably the biggest impact that blockchains have on the agricultural sector. 
Okay, uh, we have time for one more question before we wrap things up. Um, and let's begin with Mary, um, if you would. What are the opportunities for farmers to change the way they sell food? Um, are there specific ways in which farmers can view this as an opportunity to be more profitable or to, to gain even new markets? Well, we've talked about this, uh, you know, growing fragmentation on the consumer end of it, that it's moving beyond just... Uh, the, you know, wanting cheap and accessible and safe food into things that align with values and other things around the, the specialty side. Um, so I, I think that does provide some opportunities at the farm level, first of all, just to be much more market oriented and know where those profit potential is um, and, you know, basically be growing what the market is interested in buying rather than what you want to sell and then finding at the end of the day that, you know, maybe that's not it and it's going to sit there for a while. Um, but not everybody can be direct to consumer. There are opportunities with technology now. We see the rise of some brands from the farm level brands. You know, something you know, starts out like, you know, whether you had Laura's Lean Beef or Creekstone Farms or, you know, um, Pete and Jerry's Eggs, you know, things that come with some specialty proposition that actually move all the way to the brand level. When I was in New Zealand uh, last week, McDonald's had big banners in their stores saying, we sell 100% free-range eggs. So these type of changes are coming. If you look at the um, Amazon website, Amazon Fresh website, you can buy hamburgers from a single cow. And you think about the implications of the supply chain for that and that differentiation, but not, not everybody clearly is going to be able to deal with the market at the consumer level, but even at the, the customer level, you know, the processor level that's buying in the sustainability pushes inside of these companies and also better understanding, again, of you know, satisfying their consumer needs are, it will be more about you know, providing these products that have the exact kind of value and or attributes that that market wants. And I think, though, the challenge is, is there's tremendous resistance in the system to making those kinds of changes because our system's been set up to move big quantities of relatively undifferentiated product. And I was uh, speaking with a, a buyer of U.S. soybeans, or soybean, yeah, soybeans um, in a Southeast Asian country. He said, you know, we want to buy soybeans based on their oil content because we know how that breaks down in the value proposition. But the big processing companies want to sell soybeans based on whether it's, you know, basically color and size and the fact that it's this kind of bean and they really don't want to tell. So it's finding the, the, you know, the bridges between, finding these unique opportunities that are able to kind of match that scale and find those buyers that are willing to pay. And what do you see out there? Well, Mary summarized it extremely well, um, which makes it difficult, but I'll, I'll maybe take a slightly different tack. I think that um, we are seeing very large changes in consumer behavior. You see that when they go to the grocery stores or supermarkets where they're not going to the so-called center aisles anymore. They're not choosing to purchase the cornflakes. They're not buying the food that traditionally was the macaroni and cheese that was extremely processed. And they're looking for the mom and pop. I'd call them brands, but they aren't even necessarily even companies that people know the name of. They're looking for these companies they perceive as being more organic, more local, and fitting with what they would like to see in the food in the, the way they vote, as you put it earlier, Mary. So from my perspective, I think that's a massive opportunity for farmers to engage directly with consumers. Instead of farmers going to big food companies or medium-sized food companies, they can go directly farm to consumer. They can have a relationship directly with the consumer of their food. That can allow them, hopefully, to capture more value. So charge a higher price or just capture more value within the system and to hopefully adapt to what they find consumers are looking for. Maybe consumers are asking for questions that larger systems can't, can't accomplish. So there are massive opportunities, particularly through apps on phones, websites, digital technologies, the ability to be able to see through cameras what's actually happening on the farm, to be able to see through blockchain what has actually occurred in terms of the way your food is processed. These are all just tremendous opportunities for farmers to engage directly with the end consumers of their food. And I think eventually that makes potentially a more profitable farming system. Dr. Boji? 
Yeah, so I think uh, Aiden and Mary have really, really synopsized uh, this issue quite well. Let me just put a, a broader context on it with some uh, key words. We're increasingly seeing this entire uh, food uh, 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 production and distribution industry move very dramatically from a, uh, a commodity orientation uh, and a supply chain mentality uh, to a differentiated product orientation uh, and a demand-driven uh, 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 system. Uh, those are very, very dramatic shifts in terms of what people have to do and how they do it. And uh, the technology is increasingly available to get that done. Increasingly, consumers are not buying food products. They're wanting food consumption experiences. And that's a really, really important, different perspective uh, on this industry than we've had of the old traditional produce a commodity as a farmer and what I sometimes refer to as the produce and pedal mentality. If I produce it, they will come. That increasingly is not the industry of tomorrow. Well, Dawson, thoughts on this? Well, I guess I would agree with the whole concepts here, but there is still a large change needed. Uh, I've been involved with programs for the last 15 years producing high-quality beef products with very specific attributes that we felt were of interest to the consumer. And receiving good reviews from the consumer. But from a commercialization point of view, to date, those have been failures. They, we are not getting the story across in a way that allows us to get the feedback from the consumer and have the middlemen actually buy into the concepts we're, we're making at the producer level or in the production. Uh, we had Alltech Angus was a, an example of a, a meat product succulent, very good reviews, and, and quite frankly, we never could make that go because there was a barrier there between us and the consumer. So yeah, I, I see where that's coming from and the potential for doing that, but there's still a big hole in the middle in that commercialization chain that we have to take advantage of. Uh, believe me, I'd love to see it go because you tell me what attributes you want in your beef, we can work on those things with, with our tools today. I just might just come back to that because I think that's the same resistance that I was talking about there, you know, why we can't sell soybeans based on oil content rather than something else. So the existing system is set up to be more commodity push, and that includes the, the processing sector. But we see now the advent of these non-traditional actors here, the investors. You have, um, you know, Bill Gates basically investing in Beyond Meat, alternate protein sources. You have, um, you know, Sergey Brin, founder of Google, investing in tissue culture beef. You have Jeff Bezos of Amazon now completely disrupting everybody's thought pattern by buying Whole Foods. And um, so hopefully, Carl, I think we're just at the breakthrough point so. on getting through. There are people in the system now that look at this and say, our traditional food system is broken. Now, that's a, that's a rough thing, but they're coming in with very innovative ideas, very disruptive ideas, and see a new future. And I think, you know, we're talking about what that new future is. We need to, hopefully, we're close to getting past that. Okay, we have just a few minutes remaining. What I'd like to do to conclude is to go around the panel and uh, ask you to give us your closing thoughts on what uh, viewers of today's discussion might want to consider their main takeaways from what they have heard. And we begin with you, Dr. Bolger. Yeah, well, certainly we're talking about an industry that's uh, in a major transformation. And uh, we sometimes, uh, in fact, we're now doing programs on what we call disruption and chaos. And uh, that's, that's uh, where we are in this industry. Uh, it's been pretty tradition-bound in many cases, as just indicated in the previous conversation. Parts of it are still tradition-bound. Uh, but there will be a profound transformation, maybe from outside the traditional uh, players in the industry. When we start uh, doing more of uh, putting together the pharmaceutical and the health industry with the nutrition industry, uh, maybe we're going to find that uh, what happens is outside forces are going to be shaping up more than they have. When we put sensing technology out there, when IBM 
decides, which it has, that agriculture is a space where they ought to be spending some time, energy, not just at production, but across the value chain, uh, that makes a big difference in this industry. So we're going to see a lot of both big and small uh, firms and, and, in, and organizations outside the traditional uh, 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 sources or the traditional in, uh, players in the industry uh, have a very disruptive impact on this industry. Dr. Dawson. Well, I, I think it's obvious from the conversation today that technology is going to drive a lot of different things. And if you take a look at what we call the farmer today, I guess I would change uh, that to the future as being an agricultural technologist rather than a farmer. Those are the types of words. We're going to be bucking tradition, and that's one of the things that is a huge problem for a very conservative industry as we move forward. But if I had to sum it up in, in one sentence, it's not your daddy's farm anymore. Mary Shulman, take a look. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it, you know, it's, uh, it's been a great discussion, and in particular, the consumer has a much stronger vote today than ever before about what's happening on the farm, so therefore you have to be market-oriented. And market-oriented not just in terms of thinking about what's the price of you know, soybeans or what's the price of beef in here, but what are the fundamental um, you know, segments in here that, have, that I can meet with a different value proposition around it. Um, so that's one piece, and the talent piece is, is absolutely essential. I mean, all of these, there's tremendous challenges, but even more importantly, there's tremendous opportunities in the next few years, and I think it's an incredibly exciting time. But you have to be a little bit patient because, as Carl said, you can come up with a great product and a great proposition, but the time might not be just quite right yet. So how do you navigate that this transformation that we're in and actually... Um, you know, be able to kind of straddle that, still, you know, looking towards the future, but still being very grounded today and, you know, having a prop successful business. Yeah, I think uh, farmers of the future will be innovators. I think farmers of the, in, until now, have been good at learning from others, embracing technologies that others have, learning what methods they used and doing so successfully. In the future, my recommendation to farmers would be Buy yourself a passport, go travel the world, read as much as you can, learn as much as you can, and when you see innovations, within reason, embrace them as quickly as possible, because I think innovators are the ones that are going to be successful, they're going to, the ones that are going to be, the ones that are going to survive and thrive. That's the farming of the future for me, innovation. Aidan Connolly, Mary Shellman, Carl Dawson, Dr. Michael Bolgi, thank you all for joining us. It's been a fascinating conversation. We appreciate it very much. And thank you for joining us.